I'm Rebecca Cahal. And I'm Brian Fierst. And you are listening to Rural Roots. It's your favorite show about all things rural, coming to you from the Harris Center at Memorial University of Newfoundland. And we're producing right out of the CHMR studio here in St. John's. But Boyan, you're not paying attention. Uh, sorry, uh, I, I just had to <laughs> feed my chickens. What? <laughs> sorry, I just it will take a minute. There we go. Oh my goodness. Uh, so clearly something very <laughs> important is happening here right now. Um, What's going on? We're going to talk about a very different kind of farming today. No doubt. Uh, but it's one that actually has way more working farmers than you'd think is possible. They don't really produce much of anything, but there is a lot of them. There's a very small chance you might find one of them on one of the remaining 200,000 farms operating in Canada or among nearly a million farmers still left in the United States. But for the most part, they're farming on buses, trains, subways, and in glass offices and universities. And there's a lot of them, millions and millions of farmers. And of course, we're talking about online farming. Today, we're gonna talk about the phenomenon of farming games. And to help us figure out why these games are so popular, we talked to Dr. Alenda Chang, She's a professor of film and media studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and she joined us over Skype. Dr. Chang loves games, and she loves farm games. But there is a problem with farm games. And I actually, I really love games. It's just the farm games made me angry. <laughs> so as someone with, you know, a pretty strong family history of farming. I think that they make me angry too, even though I'm not even really sure why. What is about about farm games that get the goat, oh, terrible pun, <laughs> of Dr. Chang? <laughs> oh, there are so many reasons why she dislikes farm games. Uh, it all started with Farmville. You probably remember it was hugely popular. Uh, and at its peak, it had something like 85 million active players which Dr. Chang says is nothing compared to some Chinese farm games such as Happy Farm that have over 200 million players. Some of the first generation of games like Farmville, which was the big flagship game from Facebook, were so ecologically absurd. Um, You know, the fact that you didn't have to water your crops and that um, if your crops died, you could magically unwither them using your credit card. Um, kind of irked me. You know, these farm games have this really nice veneer, but uh, under the surface, they just seem to be these capitalist machines. And we're, we're letting people kind of um, experience the joys of pastoralism without really any of the hidden costs. So I guess that's why I got a little angry. <laughs> yeah, frankly, it all seems pretty dumb to me. <laughs> As someone who grew up in the country, I can tell you, you definitely can't resurrect crops or livestock with extra credits. Once they're dead, I mean. Yeah, you know, there is that too. And uh, it, it gets worse. These farm games also are a kind of economic absurd model because um, these farm games are, the farms on in these farm games are always profitable. So <laughs> there's really, it's not possible to fail. Um, and I think if you are a farmer, if you know a farmer, you know that it's a, a you know, a very um, vulnerable lifestyle where, uh, or an, an occupation where you're vulnerable to the elements and to environmental fluctuations, to fires, to pests, to um, 
the water shortages, um, and so these games really kind of insulate insulate the player from those kinds of environmental and economic realities. And, um, so it, you know, it's nice. It makes it's a nice way to spend five minutes here or there on your phone, but um, the the impact is questionable in terms of actually understanding agriculture. So as much as I'm scoffing about farm games, the fact is my brother and I, along with growing up in the country, surrounded by farms with various people in my family participating in the family farm, we did actually play a farm game. My dad is really into computers and has been since way before anyone else I know. And so we always had computers around even when other people didn't. And one of the first games I remember playing regularly was Sim Farm. But the funny thing is I'm pretty sure that Part of the reason my dad actually gave us that game was because it kind of gave you a sense of the realities of farming. You really could lose everything and there was no bringing back dead crops and, you know, a swarm of locusts would go by and and that would be pretty much it for you for the season. You know, I played them a bit, but the fact is my little brother Andrew, and I still call him my little brother even though he's taller than me, he is the real gamer in the family. He loved those games back in the 80s and he's still playing them today. So I thought it'd be fun to ask him about his own experiences with farm games. You know, it's really funny. I, I'm i so going to betray my lack of rural credits here. I grew up playing SimCity. Uh, so let's hear what Andrew has to say. Uh, I'm Andrew Cahoe. I grew up on a farm outside of Burgessville, Ontario, which is uh, in southwestern Ontario. Um, growing up in a rural community, uh, I had... Uh, uh, limited access to the internet, but I still was and became uh, a very uh, avid gamer. Um, so I came across a lot of uh, agricultural games, uh, and while I was working on farms at the time, um, I was able to uh, have both of those experiences. Right. So I so, got that uh, dual background. So what was the first? Uh, what was the first farm game you ever came across? Probably the, the biggest and, and favorite would have been Sim Farm. The point of Sim Farm is to make it season to season, uh, year to year, with a successful farm that uh, doesn't go bankrupt. <laughs> uh, it uh, is a top-down simulation game where you're basically looking at your farm from a bird's eye view. Uh, and it involves planning crops, um, buying equipment, managing uh, spraying and livestock and things like that. It also had elements where you could get involved with futures and contract markets. So how long, like if you started a farm, um, how long could you conceivably continue playing with that operation that you were to build within the within the world of SimFarm? You could run it indefinitely. Uh, there was the ability to purchase more land up to a certain finite amount and you as long as you were doing well you could continue to expand until you basically uh, had enveloped the town around and uh, <laughs> was just a completely uh, monster farm that uh, took over every all the map you could really bottom out pretty bad could you tell us a little bit about how hard it actually was to keep this this operation this farm running yeah, there was, there was a lot of different uh, things that could go wrong. Uh, as with most uh, Maxis Sims-style games, there's the 
optional disasters that uh, pop up from time to time. Uh, you could get frost uh, attacking uh, uh, your crops, uh, insect swarms, tornadoes, uh, all sorts of things. Uh, none, none of them, none of them were as, as outlandish as some of the ones you'd see in SimCity, like alien attacks or anything. But uh, um, the threat of bankruptcy was uh, uh, often there, um, closer to the end of the season, where. Um, you were running low on your reserves and you really had to plan and not expand too quickly beyond your means. Right. Um, there was uh, quite a bit of strategy in that you had to have a bit of a plan for the short term that was going to be realistic and, and uh, you could approach a bank in the game for loans, but that would only get you so far. You know, up until this episode, I actually never played a farm game. So I downloaded a couple of them on my phone and uh, one on my computer that just played some sounds for you. <laughs> uh, I was re I, I really enjoyed playing it. So I want to ask you though, Sure. funny sound effects aside, did you actually get into it? Uh, no, I, I couldn't really get into it. it it's just, it's too preposterous. <laughs> and, <it's, laughs> and something that Dr. Chang and I actually talked about, that it's these farm games um, that you usually play on social media make very little attempt at recreating some sort of a farming environment. Yeah. So, you know, your wheat grows in a minute and 30 seconds. Right. Your corn grows in four minutes and 50 seconds, but your potatoes magically take... 22 minutes because you know you got them later than your ability to grow corn and right. wheat and so they're just really it's pure entertainment and i mean also what dr chang mentioned it's also it's it's commerce yeah exactly and um, there is another thing that made dr chang quite uncomfortable and aside from the story um silly storyline um these games misrepresent much more than just farm life the protagonist almost all the time is um, is a is a woman, um, a redhead, often wearing blue overalls <laughs> with her hair and pigtails, and it's it's kind of um, it's kind of enchanting and also very disturbing because it's it's so unlike the reality of farm labor, at least in the United States. But I I think that it probably goes back to some of the stories that we tell ourselves about. Um, uh, white Midwestern farmers, um, sort of a Pippi Longstocking look, or um, maybe Anne of Green Gables would be another comparison. Um, so the, all of these these women, these young women, are often the the flimsy narrative is that they have to go back to save grandfather's farm, <laughs> or or that they decided to leave the city and go to the country to start a new life, um, and they're you know they're redheaded and therefore um, kind of spunky. And, and ready to take on large agro conglomerates. <laughs> um, but it's just, you know, it's very odd, especially I live in California and, and the reality of farm labor here, um, and this is one of the breadbaskets of the United States, is that most of the farm labor is migrant farm labor. It used to be from Mexico and from Latin America, but it, increasingly it's actually people from Southeast Asia. Uh, and these are people who really have um, are often undocumented, um, are being paid very little, have to be uprooted with the kind of seasonal work that they do, um, and have very little protection <laughs> or security in their in their life. And so it's an, a condition of economic precarity, and these farm games totally 
totally don't model that at all. And it's very rare to even see a brown-skinned avatar in these games. So that's unfortunate. Yeah, that's an angle I hadn't even considered, but it's just so true. Yeah, it's just ridiculous how simplified these games can be. Um, and it's, it's really, it's like, well, I mean, we don't know who made them, but it really sounds like something coming from the imagination of someone who hasn't spent any time either on or even considering the realities of what farming entails in the 21st century. That's probably true. (laughs) It's really just taking this incredibly complex situation and involving politics, economics, culture, um, even just the very, uh, you know, the stewardship elements, um, but then reducing it into this caricature that, as Dr. Chang says, doesn't really reflect who's doing this work, Um, And that really isn't even trying to. So how did Dr. Chang get into the farm gaming scene? You know, it's funny. um, The same way many other people did at the time, uh, it was Farmville, which in many ways was actually Facebook sort of killer app. People were becoming Facebook members in order to play Farmville. (laughs) Because how many times did you get an invitation to play farm game and say, this is a reason to leave Facebook? (laughs) (laughs) I know. I mean, mean, how many of those invitations did we turn down? I know, I know. So that was the thing, Mm. actually, that brought people to the platform at the time. I started to to play farm games with friends um, through Facebook. Um, So it was partially a social endeavor and everybody at the time I remember was playing Farmville uh, and then I had discovered that this would be actually an excellent um, test case for the kinds of uh, proposals I was trying to develop around environment and environmental gaming um, and so I ended up just trying really hard to play as many farm games as I could and I played uh, casual games um, I played games that were on consoles like uh, Heyday Oh, no, sorry, not Heyday, that's mobile, but um, I think Harvest Moon is one of the big ones. And then I also tried to play games that were produced um, by different national uh, companies. So I played a lot of English language ones, but I also played some Chinese ones, um, a Japanese one. Um, and I continue to hear about other examples, which which kind of fascinate me. To me, it was just this really, really interesting brew of social dynamics and environmental dynamics and... Um, new media. Um, and so I, you know, I just kind of took it on and I played, I even played uh, much more generic occupational games like Farming Simulator, where all you get to do is basically drive a combine at 20 miles per hour. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually quite boring. Um, but, you know, to kind of come up with this, to come up with an answer to this question of why are these farm games so popular and what is it that they, that they do for us that makes them so compelling? It's amazing that this is a global phenomenon. I had no idea that it was such a big thing. But I just, I'm not able to really get over the point that we all have this leisure time now. And, uh, you know, in this post-industrial reality, I thought the whole thing was that we didn't want to be, you know, (laughs) toiling in the fields, essentially. And so why is it that so many people, what, what reason does she think so many people are interested in doing this in their spare time. What is that? I think it has a lot to do with a sense of nostalgia over some pastoral past Mm. that was easier and simpler. I think there is a sense of accomplishment as well. 
right. you you know you fill the orders you have grown something and takes very little time i guess we feel really separated from a lot of those those activities that would have been a second nature sort of thing to our even our grandparents they knew how to do things with their hands and maybe that maybe there is something there maybe and and i also wonder and actually dr chang and i didn't talk about this but i also wonder it's one of the things that you kind of finish um most of the work we do very rarely something is done right but this is kind of you know you've grown some crops and you fed your cows and you produced milk and butter and then you know sally wanted to buy some butter and you sold her butter online yeah and then you can stop playing and go on with you as opposed to you know the young farmers who we interviewed early in the earlier in the season talking about you know you can't take vacation because the cows don't take vacation there is no Christmas, there is no New yeah. Year's, there is none of that stuff. Anyway, I'll let Dr. Chang explain all of these reasons because she does that really well. Farmville actually is no longer as popular, but there are always games like it, like Heyday is actually massively popular right now. Um, and that's through, a, I believe, a Swedish company. But um, what makes them popular is this this kind of... Um, the sense that you are reconnecting to the land, even though it on some levels it is preposterous but i also think that it's also about what you're doing in the game more so than um than the contents and it's about this uh ethics of care and cultivation and the sense that you're tending something which i think appeals to a lot of people um and we you know we mostly at least in in our context maybe not in your context live in urban areas and um you know it's an easy way to feel like you're reconnecting with with territory or with land um also with animals which is part of the original sort of definition of pastoral um and ultimately it's a little problematic but i still think it's potentially valuable at the same time as a window into into more <laughs> you know given that these games are mostly played in urban environments i, I can't help but think how much harm are they doing in actually reinforcing some of the misconceptions and totally distorting the reality of what farming life, rural life actually looks like? Yeah, well, once again, to go back to the episode, uh, the, I think it was our, was it our first episode this season? Yeah, it was. With the, with the, with the four young women. Young women yeah. going back to the farm and, and working these different types of operations. Each of them, in some way or another, addressed the idea that there are just so many things about the day-to-day of life on a contemporary farming operation that people just don't get. And sometimes it's silly stuff, but sometimes it's it goes deeper than that. So I think it's quite interesting. I actually asked Andrew if he thought that these games had the potential to teach people things about, about rural and farming life. And while I suspect that he would qualify that it depends on what game we're talking about, here's what he said. I think if they were done a little differently, they might. I think that there is uh, some potential there because you've got a medium that is rich and uh, that can be used to tell stories as well as relay information. Mm. Um, You've got the ability to bring more information in and, and make it personalized to the individual through a game that that you might not have through some other way of delivering that information whether right. it's like a brochure uh, information or information campaign an ad or, or something or, yeah yeah for sure 
Uh, so yeah, you have the ability in a computer game or, or, or video game to create a narrative and create a good place to, um, relay that information that's, that's personalized to the individual and, and, um, made real through their sort of virtual experience. You know, that's really interesting he mentioned that because when I talked to Dr. Chang, that's exactly what she was saying, mm. that now we are starting to see some developers. Many of them tend to be focused in universities because they're seeing this as sort of a research experiment, mm. right? But they're starting to kind of develop those kinds of uh, more complex complex games. I'm wondering if any of them are being used, and I don't even know if we answered this question, if they are being used, like I, when I think about where, I may be wrong about this, but my belief is that some of the flight simulation games, for example, that would have been, you know, they would date back to the earlier days of, of computer games. Um, I suspect that they were actually developed or, or used to actually train pilots. So is this something, I wonder if that's something that we're seeing too, where they're actually, there's a pretty good chance that people are using that VR capability to actually like teach for real. You know, it's interesting. I for this episode, I also talked to my brother mm -hmm. who makes computer games for a living. He said new versions of games such as Farm Simulator mm -hmm. are incredibly complex, incredibly detailed. So you could technically use them to teach somebody how to drive a tractor, right. or how to drive a combine. Right? Yeah. What Dr. Chang was talking about is kind of building these alternative environments that are maybe a little bit closer mm -hmm. um, to what the real environment is like. Right. Here's what she said. A couple of high-profile individuals and, and institutions have tried to build on the Farmville craze. And um, there's a, a lab at University of Washington Bothell that actually made a wetlands restoration game based on the, the Farmville model, except in this game, you actually have to um, think very carefully about species interaction. So you can't just plant things willy-nilly, but you actually have to consider their proximity to waterways, um, and animals also have to have a certain type of vegetation or um, water support. So they actually tried to embed, embed these principles of species um, interaction and biodiversity into their game. And then um, there's a very high-profile New York Times writer, Nicholas Kristof, who um, was inspired by Farmville to try to create a game that actually leveraged um, social and casual gaming for more progressive ends. And he ended up coming up with this game called Half the Sky, which um, went along with the publication of the book, which is about empowering women and girls worldwide. But um, they use a kind of um, uh, a village to center the game. Um, so that actually grew out of his experience looking at Farmville, which I thought was interesting. That's really interesting indeed. It looks like we could make these games a bit more meaningful. And she also, once again, alluded to the fact that there are a variety of games worldwide. Are they very different? She played over 40 different farm games as part of her research. And what she found is that the regional specific specificity comes in terms of um, what kind of crops you will grow, what kind of livestock will you raise. So if you're playing a Chinese-made game, you might be growing daikon radishes and um, raising storks instead of chickens. Right. Who knew? So there is a bit of an educational component or a potential educational component to that. 
Yeah, that's what she said as well, with about the same amount of skepticism <laughs> uh, you seem to have. There are some um, games that take this to a whole new level. Um, the one game she would really like to try playing, but was not yet able to get a copy of, is a Korean farm game that has a really strange twist on this whole thing. The one that I really want to try is actually Korean, and I haven't been able to to work on it yet because it's on Android. But um, there's a Korean game called Real Farm, which apparently, if you play, actually leads to real crops being couriered to your door. <laughs> I, so I'm kind of I, one of my students actually showed me this, and I'm still trying to wrap my head around how that works in a logistics way. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there's a real market, and apparently, I don't know, I suppose if you are a successful virtual farmer, you get fresh vegetables and fruits. Okay, so as much as that made me laugh, it's also got a bit of a horrifying, dystopian kind of thing to it, because it just immediately makes me think of how, you know, uh, online retailers like Amazon are getting into the grocery business now. And imagine if they were able to turn, with gamification, if they were able to turn buying groceries into a game it's quite horrifying (laughs) absolutely horrifying (laughs) but that said maybe this is a way to get urban dwelling consumers more connected to their food sources maybe i i don't know i mean mean, it does seem really far-fetched to me and it does get quite extreme with this game people were known to get up in the middle of the night because they had to water the crops or the crops would be stolen by other players there were even reports of marriages breaking up because people would not stop playing. Oh my goodness. Game. It keeps on reminding me of Tamagotchis, which were the the craze a while back, the little virtual pets who you had oh, to tend yeah, to that I everyone's kids that. had. Yes, <laughs> I could never understand that. But now the adults have the farm Tamagotchis. Interestingly, it seems... Uh, to be a new trend in games, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, My brother, who works for a gaming studio in Croatia... So I think we have to mention, this is... Not every single episode is going to feature both of our siblings. No, I don't But somehow, both of us us do rural podcasting, and both of them do video game stuff. Go figure. Maybe it's an older, younger sibling. (laughs) Yeah, who do you think's older? Who do you think is younger? (laughs) So, my baby brother, who is not taller than me, is is uh, working for a studio in Croatia mm. that makes uh, actual computer games. Right. So I asked him about, you know, the whole economics behind it and uh, what is that you that he as a computer um, maker, um, sort of how does he sees people who play games? And he said that what gamers' primary investment is in a game is their time. Wow. Right. That's a really interesting uh, way to conceive of the relationship between a gamer and a gaming company. There is an investment happening aside from the purchase, the initial purchase. It's that ongoing time relationship and that that spending of time. Yeah, and it gets really complicated when it gets to social media games. Right. Because not only are the gamers now giving their time during which they can be served and advertising Mm -hmm. and purchasing opportunities but they're also handing over incredible amount of personal data of course they are yeah so if you're a casual gamer like me you will spend a few minutes here and there 
playing Farmville or whatever, and the real value becomes the information, right, that you handle. Yeah. And the advertising that then comes your way. So the potential educational aspects or finding ways to enhance the understanding of real life or, you know, uh, sustainability, farming sustainability, those uh, those points are not exactly top of mind when we're talking about many of these game makers. Nope, not at all. I would imagine not even the first top ten. Yeah. So I actually did ask Andrew what kind of farm game that doesn't yet exist he might be interested in playing. Um, that's funny because I asked Dr. Chang the same thing. So let's hear what Andrew said first. I've recently, in the last 10 years, um, become quite interested in the financial aspect of um, trading. So having a, a robust market slash trading system where you are setting up uh, contracts either with uh, a local grain elevator or, or, or dealing directly on the, on the futures market. Um, I don't know, some kind of uh, financial system that, that was robust and uh, very detailed um, could have some interesting implications for the gameplay that uh, you might not see if, uh, if it's just a sort of basic economic system that you're, that you're, that you're, dealing with right so, and i guess so that, gets into, that gets into like global aspects of farming too and globalization oh, definitely. yeah modeling modeling uh global events uh, in the context of the of that market could uh could present a new side of gameplay that uh that hasn't really been seen before cool you know that's really interesting um when you think about the fact that today's trading that we consider still being done by traders is mm. actually mostly done through computer systems yeah. in milliseconds. Yeah. A game like that would probably be an interesting interesting thing to play with and to kind of gain the understanding of how that global market works. Yeah, yeah, I think it's pretty interesting. And and, and the idea that you could uh, you would have to respond to sort of global forces. That's um that would be, you know, bringing it up a level from um, you know, tossing a bucket of slop once a day to some fake chickens <laughs> <laughs> just as i did <laughs> but you mentioned that you asked dr chang the same sort of question in terms of what kind of farm game she would like to see what was her answer uh, it was really interesting listen to this i think my farm game would be probably um very different and um would actually want to deal with these sort of unpalatable realities like uh, soil erosion and waste and eutrophication and um, thinking about the farm not as a closed system but actually as a as an open system that opens out onto neighboring lands and waterways and um, thinking about the energetic inputs. You know, it's not very fun to talk about it like that, but hopefully when it was actually a game, it would be interesting because all gamers are are very good at actually... Um, playing with different factors and and working with games as experimental systems. And so uh, I would tell most people that if you're a game player, you're actually kind of like a scientist um, because you're dealing with um, an experimental system that models certain factors and leaves others as control. Oh, yeah. So 
that's a really different way to conceive of what gaming is all about. We've got the stereotype of the ultimate time waster. And then on the other hand, <laughs> you know, there is this um, sort of uh, spirit of inquiry, experimental scientist kind of approach, which I think to some extent I buy, though I'm going to qualify that again, maybe not for Facebook games. Yeah, maybe not, right? But you know, it's interesting that kind of modeling, that kind of complex environment would actually take enormous amount of knowledge and understanding of mm-hmm. an ecosystem, of mm-hmm. market systems. Uh, it would be it would be interesting. Mm-hmm. I talked to Dr. Chang actually quite some time ago. It was an interview I did almost a year, well, actually more than a year ago now. So I thought before we finish this episode, I'll give her a call via Skype again and um, see what's new in the world of um, farm games. Mm. So she kind of... Um, Filled me in on what's new. Here it is. One of the most noticeable things is just the decline in popularity of Farmville and its sequels, the, Z- the Zynga games that became enormously popular when Facebook was a new thing. Um, and I, I think I'm not exactly sure why that decline has happened, but largely it's probably because there's just now oversaturation of the market. But at the same time, I also have become aware of more and more farm games all across the world. So um, at an archive in Arizona, at the University of Arizona, they actually have um, uh, Turkish farm games, which I might go check out, as well as early business simulation games that were created in England, I'm sorry, in Germany, England, and the United States. So um, as I dig further, there seem to be more and more of these examples. And it seems like every culture has a farm game of some kind um, and or a pastoral ideal of some kind. Um, and there's also um, a highly successful game uh, called Stardew Valley, which um, your listeners might really enjoy because it takes that formula of the, the farm game and really reinvents it to some extent and, and makes it a more interesting, um, an interesting experience. So you also mentioned that Dr. Chang now has a new lab called Wireframe. Yeah, when we talked about this episode, she told me that she just opened her lab and we'll provide a link on the website to the lab. But the idea behind the lab is that her and her colleagues will be developing games that model some of those complexities that she talked about. Right, and they have their very first game almost ready to go. That's right. It's going to be an online game, so you'll be able to to play it online. And it's called Corridors. Here is how she describes it. It's an, uh, it's an interesting idea. So the game is called Corridors, and it's about what industry people call wildlife mitigation. But essentially, it's about uh, how do you modify human infrastructure so that animal species can coexist and flourish alongside of humans. So, um, for example, one of the levels is um, you're steering a car or controlling the speed of a car on a highway at night where deer are crossing and deer are crepuscular creatures. So they tend to come out at dawn or dusk. And and that species, at least in the United States, is responsible for most of the automobile damage and the sort of costly vehicle collisions and fatalities. Um, And so we thought it would be good to have a level that that sort of thinks about speed and about how deer actually perceive headlights. Um, so, you know, we have that phrase, you're a deer in headlights, because they, they tend to freeze as they try to assess the situation, which is usually the wrong thing to do when a car is speeding at you. Um, but so we have levels about loggerhead turtles that are hatching and going out to sea and get disoriented by 
um, artificial lighting. And um, there, these are sort of little animal vignettes from all over the world. But we're, we're, it's a simple web-based game. We're hoping it'll be published online soon um, for everyone to try. Um, and we hope to make more games like that in Wireframe. So I am going to be <laughs> a total buffoon here and say, that sounds like the fanciest version of Frogger ever. <laughs> <laughs> It does, I had never really actually considered the uh, ecosystem uh, reality that is that early game Frogger that we all played with our space bars. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get on the other side of the road. Yeah, it sounds a good bit more complex than that. And uh, I mean, I can totally imagine a Newfoundland version of it with some moose trying to make their way across the Trans-Canada Highway. Yeah, absolutely. Anybody who's driven on a Newfoundland Highway just knows just how dangerous an encounter with a moose could be. Dr. Chang is also not giving up on creating a more, more complex farm game, so that's sort of a next step in mm. the work that they want to do at the Wireframe Lab. I'm actually completing my book, um, which is about the ecology of video games, and so farm games have a central place in one chapter. Um, but the the sort of principles that I'm organizing the book around are the same principles I want to reflect in the game design. And so it's something as simple as um, having game worlds that are finite, where resources are not, resources are not infinite and readily available. Um, modeling, so not only finitude, but also entropy. <laughs> so, um, if you, I would love to create a farm game at some point, which actually had um, problems with, you know, the buildup of salt in the soil, or you know, where applying fertilizer leads to toxic runoff, or um, where energy is not plentiful, <laughs> and there are there are consequences to all of your actions. And so it's these simple things, you know, causes actions have consequences. Um, communities are multi-species communities, um, and um, things are limited. So in some ways, these are not things that gamers like to confront, <laughs> but I would like to change that. Yeah, I wonder if there'd be a market for such a complex game. Um, it'd be a lot more difficult to play than, you know, a game like the one that you kept playing during this whole episode. Uh, <laughs> And it also wouldn't give that same easy sense of accomplishment that we were talking about earlier. It wouldn't be as simple as press this button four times and you get a gold star. Or let's say how long it takes me to harvest, you know, I don't know, strawberries. So there's a field of strawberries. Look at that. Oh, my barn is full. They make such a curious sound when you pick them, don't they? I know. Right? <laughs> Have you ever made that sound to strawberries? But no, seriously, I think it would really be an eye-opening experience and uh, for many people who actually would try to play a game like that. Because I don't think that somebody who grew up in a city would ever understand the complexity of what it actually takes to... Yeah, you know, it could probably cars. serve as a bridge between the largely urban and those, those rural audiences who sometimes don't have great opportunities to connect. Yeah, especially if we're talking about online games with with many different people playing too. Yeah, exactly. And now those are very popular, and I think it would be a real interesting way to kind of start changing some of that conversation. I'm looking forward to see the experiments that come out of Dr. Chang's lab and her colleagues, and um, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I have good news for you. You do. I do, because I'm looking at the clock here, and we definitely have time for 
your favorite feature? On the map. (laughs) (laughs) This is the feature where we give our listeners the opportunity to share their stories with everyone across the country who's, who's listening in. And we ask, what puts your town on the map? This time we have a great one. Joining us in the studio were our colleague, Amy Jones, from the Harris Center, and her mom, Jane, who told us the incredible story of an even more incredible summer sausage. When you say whatever farmer has, is it like pork sausage, beef sausage? I, I'm sausage? not sure. I, I think it's beef. It's, it's very, it's red. Yeah, I think it's got beef. Sure. I wouldn't it's, say for sure that there's no pork no, happening. No, I, I would say there's <laughs> just about everything in yeah. there. So let's let the Croatian who has never experienced summer sausage open the bag, take a sniff, and describe what he smells. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> this actually smells like home because we make a lot of sausages yeah. at home, right? So, oh, this is divine. And it smells really spicy. Oh. I wonder what the mixture is because it doesn't smell like... You know, it doesn't smell like your chorizo sausage or no, your cacciatore no, no. sausage. Yeah. It smells, it has a very distinct yes. smell and very it's wonderful. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And it's highly smoked too, I think. Yes. And actually the little uh, meat shop in St. Agathe, they import the butcher from Germany. Ah, okay. He doesn't even speak English. Right. He's just right from Germany to make this, uh, not, not only the summer sausage, I'm assuming, but a lot of, of all, all their sausages. So has it always been the same butcher shop where you yep. picked up the sausage? Yes. Now we've had tragic news. Uh, they're retiring. Oh, oh no. no. I know, but they've told us they've passed their uh, their recipe on to another uh, butcher shop in the area, not in St. Agath, but in the area, and we've got their address. So this year when we try at Christmas, if they're not open, we'll have to move on. When you said that there was a, a sausage story from New Hamburg. I'm from pretty close to that area near the Woodstock area. And we have our own signature sausage called Tavistock sausage. And Tavistock is a small community, uh, you know, outside of Woodstock. And similar to what you're saying, people would drive for miles to go get Tavistock sausage. Now it's a sausage that you actually have to cook. But the fact is, I couldn't even tell you what the name of the butcher shop is, but everyone goes to that place and gets that sausage and has for years. My grandma is 97 years old, and as long as I've known Grandma Mac, she's been really into Tavistock sausage and sort of seen that as the place to go. Um, it's smoked too, but uh, like I said, you, you have to cook it, but I do think it's also kind of a beef-based sort of a thing. Yes. Um, but isn't it funny how regional meats... Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my goodness, absolutely. Oh, and we this- didn't mention actually that Oh, um, I need you to come a little bit closer sorry. to the microphone. <laughs> um, hey, we have another voice piping in. I'm going to introduce her. This is <laughs> this is Amy Jones, formerly Amy Tucker, daughter of our guest here, and she has something she wants to say too. <laughs> I was just going to say that uh, it wasn't mentioned that my mom's father, my grandfather, lives on Vancouver Island. So he orders the sausage from Vancouver Island, <laughs> from uh, orders sausage from Ontario, and ships it to Newfoundland. So it's like a whole cross Canada endeavor to it's get like this a, sausage. To a us. coastal sausage <laughs> operation. <laughs> That's fantastic. So you really planned this every Christmas. Oh, definitely. Yes, I'll take the summer sausage and thaw it out, and I have a meat slicer, and I put it on its thinnest setting and run a few of the summer sausages through and we have it all Christmas. 
Sounds it's delicious. Really, it's the hit oh. of every party that we have. Yes. Everyone looks forward to the summer sausage, and everyone comments on it and how great it is, mm. and it's become this big deal to have this summer sausage <laughs> at our houses for yeah. Christmas time. You notice it's wrapped in a cloth, mm-hmm. and when that cloth is, is done, I have a grandchild that sleeps with it under his pillow. <laughs> The smell of it is so... (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's dedication to the sausage. That's a sausage lover. My daughter, uh, my other daughter, Jennifer, she was going through Toronto and and she had a a stop. I don't know, it was 10 hours or something before her flight to Newfoundland. So she rented a car and went to St. Agathe to get summer sausage. And it wasn't open. She almost died. (laughs) She asked uh, people on the street, where do they live? And they told her. She went to their house, knocked on the door, and told her she was only here for a few hours. She had to take the summer sausage back to Newfoundland. So they opened up the shop and sold her the summer sausage. Oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Now, he was German, too, a little butcher. And Jennifer doesn't understand any German, of course. But anyway, they managed to... uh, Oh, the sausage talk is universal. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. That was wonderful. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) and then the best part of that story is that amy brought some of that sausage to the office yeah that was the best part that was the best and my mom brought some of the tavistock sausage that we were talking about but i didn't bring that to the office (laughs) (laughs) i don't think we mentioned though uh i just want to say that so jane tucker who is Amy's mom, who was the main person sharing her story there. She currently lives in St. Phillips, Newfoundland and Labrador, which is a small coastal community just outside of St. John's. But she was she was actually born in Ontario and in Southwest Ontario. And the small town with the famous summer sausages that she was talking about is St. Agath, Ontario. That's right. So, on that tasty and spicy (laughs) note, (laughs) it's time to end this episode. Yeah, we talked about the strange world of firm video games and the ways that they impact and also sometimes distort perceptions of real life. But we also talked about the possibilities to make those games into more useful tools for understanding the environment, rurality, and the nature of farm labor. Our main guest was Dr. Alenda Chang from the University of California, Santa Barbara, who joined us for this conversation via Skype. And we talked to our baby brothers, <laughs> Andrew Coho and Osran First. And don't forget Jane Tucker and Amy Jones, who told us about an amazing summer sausage from southern Ontario that makes its way to Newfoundland and Labrador every year for Christmas. <laughs> As always, Rural Roots is produced at the Leslie Harris Center of Regional Policy and Development at Memorial University of Newfoundland, and we do that at the CHMR Campus Radio. We produce this show in partnership with the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation and the Rural Policy Learning Commons Partnership. The show is funded through a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada grant. You can hear us on our website at ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. We are also available through your favorite podcasting app and on community and campus radio stations across the country. I'm Rebecca Cahoe. And I'm Brian Fierst. <laughs>